Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host for today, Daniel, the lead mentor and one of the educators here at the Knowledge Exchange. We run courses and mentorship, so head on over to tkex.org for all the info. I'm here today with an awesome massage therapist called Toby Coy. You probably have not heard of him. He he keeps under the radar, but he's really, really knowledgeable in, in terms of how to use manual therapy in a pain management setting. We've had some really great conversations in the past, and I'm excited to, to delve into a few topics with him in regards to how we can frame manual therapy in perhaps uh, a more helpful way with helpful narratives based on what we know from the evidence. So Toby, thanks, thanks for, for having me here today uh, in, in this setting. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure. Um, for, for context, for anybody who's wondering about that, um, Daniel had to, we ended up having to meet up in person because our internet connections together were atrocious. And now we're sitting here in my living room with qu- quite a lot of heavy rain outside. So if anyone starts to hear pitter-pattering, um, please just be soothed by it. I hope you're not too distracted. It's relaxing, right? Yeah. So, so t- Toby, uh, if we were to start for for those that, who don't know you, what's, what's your story? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been a massage therapist practicing in Sydney, Australia since 2012. Um, to begin with, I was pretty typical, I suppose, um, in the sense that I had... Uh, the the expected range of interests for remedial massage therapists. So I was really into myofascial release, um, pretty impressed by trigger points, and I like to think that I was a bit of a body mechanic. And so I was really um, stimulated by this idea of somebody walking in and me being able to look at them and find ways that we could change what was going on with the tissues in their bodies and um, come across a, a good outcome. Um, But that changed pretty quickly when I started um, becoming more aware of this body of knowledge called pain science. (laughs) Um, And I realized that a lot of what I was reading wasn't really congruent at all with the the models I had for what I was doing and the way I was explaining things both to myself but to my clients. And so I had a a mini existential crisis. I I wondered whether what was real, what am I doing? Um, And that kind of resolved pretty quickly and funneled itself into a, a, a low-level, constant simmering frustration with the, the healthcare system that had kind of gen- created me and given me these ideas, these um, delusions of grandeur, almost. And I, I became so interested in this idea that um, we, pro- say, massage, but this is true, I guess, for all therapists, your job entails providing a, a certain kind of service for a client, a certain kind of therapy, and you have ideas about it which may not pertain to reality at all. Um, and similarly, the person before you who's being guided by you also has ideas that may not pertain to reality. And this idea, this, this story, the many stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that end up guiding clinical decision making um, became just quite fascinating to me. And so nowadays I spend a lot of time trying to unpack why we do what we do, what we think we're doing, what it's more likely that we may be doing, and what the implications of that might be. Um, so a lot of navel gazing, basically. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's me. That's awesome. It's an awesome journey as well. 
to have where you find out where you have gaps in your knowledge or mm. where there's some uh, some incongruencies with what you are saying and what you are doing and what the literature is showing us as what is the least wrong narratives out there. So I imagine that process would have been had kind of ups and downs with backfire effect with reconciling the part your past the sunk cost from university mm. and courses so and i'm sure there's people out there that are also on this journey so what what's some advice that you would give looking back on on your own experiences with dealing with the sunk cost and and the um the the tribulations of finding out hey i was probably mistaken or there's better ways more helpful ways what's some advice you'd give to clinicians out there yeah sure um well, yeah, it was awful, very unpleasant. One of the things that got me through it, um, which is being a little bit dramatic, but a, a positive thing that I got from the process was that I could see that there was a, a broader way of looking at what was going on in a therapeutic interaction, whether you're looking at the application of a specific technique or a, a massage session as a whole or somebody undertaking exercise. There's... There was, I could see there was a way of zooming out a little bit and, and being aware of, of more than what I'd been aware of before. So it wasn't a case necessarily of realizing that I had to start completely anew. In fact, I realized that intuitively there were some uh, aspects of just a, a pain management interaction, for, for me, massage, aspects of that that had not really rung true even when I was quite deep in specifically the myofascial release narrative. And so it was frustrating, but it was also kind of relieving to go, oh, well, I was right in thinking that it didn't quite make sense that this all came down to a, a myofascial chain dysfunction. Um, and so there was a lot of positivity there, realizing that firstly, it's okay to not have all the answers. It, it's ludicrous to think that you can have all the answers. That was also really um, encouraging. And it, it made me far more relaxed about the, the therapeutic exchange, I suppose. Like I, I put so much less pressure on myself now than I did back when I thought I had to diagnose all these bizarre dysfunctions, right? Um, so there's a lot that I think is worth focusing on in that respect. And one last thing before I waffle on too much, I do hear this a lot from um, physio grads. So I see the, where the clinic that I have practiced at is located is on the University of Technology Sydney Ultimo campus. And we see quite a few um, people who are doing their masters of physiotherapy. And they are in the moment trying to grapple with lecture content that tries to explain the complexity of pain. They're trying to marry that up with their other content which is teaching them a lot of manual therapy right or and they're also trying to marry it with what they read online about this nothing working basically right <laughs> and that's a, a very negative way of of looking at this process of of zooming out and uh, and embracing complexity and embracing complexity can be really liberating because it can give you the the space and the presence of mind to realize what's maybe relevant to the person in front of you. Um, and I, I, for me, I could only be open to, the, to that kind of insight and to that kind of honest communication with another person if I wasn't burdened down with preconceived notions of what of dysfunction.
so so for me it was liberating is mm. the is the one sentence answer yeah so so we don't have to uh do all the work or know all the answers or attend all the courses and yeah and every single question that uh, a client a patient asks us we don't have to have a straight answer for and maybe it's now the the narrative therapy the finding out what they think of it using motivational interviewing having that coaching mindset as opposed to the authoritarian fixer operator mindset that will likely lead to less burnout rates in clinicians and perhaps more job satisfaction that we aren't doing all the work for someone it's they're finding out ways to help themselves and we have we have the tools that we can give to them so that they can do and take responsibility for their health and their condition. So, so I imagine it must be difficult for the students to reconcile all these different viewpoints and, and information. And, and what's some of the, um, the, those kind of uh, confusing uh, statements that you, you hear hearing from the new grads? Yeah. Yeah. I need a um, podcast by itself. I want, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be um, uncharitable. So maybe we'll answer this question in the, the, the spirit of good humor, right? Um, because we can all appreciate how difficult it is to reconcile a lot of this stuff. And it would have been harder if I had to also reconcile this whilst passing exams, right? And, and successfully uh, or satisfying the people who were marking me on my clinical placement. That would have made it way more stressful and difficult, right? So with all that in mind, um, one of the things that I see a lot is a, a deep discomfort with when manual therapy should be used in a, a pain management context, which let's be real is most of the appointments that say a physiotherapist is going to see most of the time, somebody's primary complaint is going to be pain. Um, yeah. So I see a lot of confusion about, well, we know that it's, they're, they're probably more general, say like quote-unquote neurophysiological effects rather than specific tissue-based effects. Um, and we know that it's only going to have a transient impact on their pain. So, but I also know that I'm meant to be doing it. I know that somebody's come to me in pain and step one after I've assessed them is to make them feel a bit better and then talk about a long-term approach. Um, but even as a student, you can see the inherent, um, the inconsistency there, right? It, they struggle to really justify to both themselves and I think to their clients why they're bothering with it to begin with apart from um, some kind of appeasement of expectation, both on the behalf of their client, but also expectation perhaps from the healthcare system itself. Because that's what one does. At step one, you, you do a little bit of manual therapy. So that's probably the most common one. Um, and a lot of messy stuff about posture. It matters, it doesn't matter. The core matters, it doesn't matter. We know it doesn't matter, but let's do some of it anyway. Yeah, I think we're in a period of great transition, um, perhaps especially in our educational institutions. Um, and it must be very hard as a student to, yes. to get through that. <laughs> 100%. And you're right. The, the first point you made, it's the university is there to pass exams, get the qualification, and then perhaps the learning can happen after mm, yeah. with the right resources and, and settings and mentors and such. Absolutely. And quickly to their credit, um, UTS, University of Technology Sydney, their master's program for physiotherapy really puts in a lot of effort to talk about the complexity of pain. And I haven't seen any master's student from that university 
who is ignorant in these areas. I think that the difficulty comes in synthesizing that with all the other stuff that you learn, which um, has deep, deeply rooted beliefs that are not congruent. Exactly. With yeah. that. So, so they, they feel that, that clash, that discordance, and that's what confuses them, but it's not as if the university itself is failing to, to cover this content. Yeah, and many factors involved in that process. And whether or not we get some academic reform in the future, we'll see as the evidence updates. And in, you mentioned they have, there's some struggles with applying the manual therapy in, a, in the context of pain management. What are some of the, the ways that you would approach manual therapy in that setting, in that context? Yeah, it's for a, pain. Yeah, so it's so interesting this topic um, because we, we talk about manual therapy like it's a thing, a discrete thing, right? Um, but of course, it's an umbrella term that, that refers to quite a lot. So it's, it's hard to speak usefully, but also with these kind of generalities. So for the moment, um, perhaps I'll speak to the, the kind of manual therapy that is more likely to be seen shared across both a massage context and a physiotherapy context. So one thing that I find is very helpful is reframing the manual therapy approach so that it's quite clear to the client that the manual therapy is a symptom modification uh, process that whose intent is to help us learn more about what's going on with the person. It's not its primary purpose is not just to make them feel better. Um, because I think there are a lot of pitfalls associated with that. Um, I, I jokingly referred to it before as step one. Um, after the assessment, you get them feeling a bit better and then you get them moving. Um, that has potential downsides. Um, the most obvious being that you see this idea that if somebody has an acute pain episode, the first thing they should do is see somebody to calm it down, um, who will then guide them towards feeling better. There are definitely worse beliefs to have, right? But it's not it's not really necessary, right? Um, I struggle to justify manual therapy purely for a pain management perspective. I don't think the evidence really supports it in terms of a, a superiority over other approaches, especially active approaches. So. If you're going back a little bit, if I'm saying, well, let's let's not use it purely for pain management and let's use it from for other purposes, I think those purposes are to do with, um, they, they should be used during the diagnostic process, but not as a diagnostic tool. Because as a diagnostic tool, they don't tell you a whole lot, right? But what they do tell the person in front of you is that you're really listening to what they're telling you. I think there's huge power and usefulness in putting your hands on somebody's shoulder if they're telling you that it really hurts and they say it really hurts right in here and I think there's something wrong right in here. Um, it's quite validating for the person to say, okay, let's have a look at that and I'm going to put my hands here. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Can you try moving your arm in the way that you're having trouble with? Okay. And then asking permission to experiment a little bit with ways that we can change how, in this case, I, I just randomly went for a shoulder, but let's, is it okay if we experiment with ways that we can change how this feels? So we can get a better idea of what's going on. Not because 
uh, we really need to make this shoulder not hurt. Of course, we want that in the long term, but specifically as a learning process. And few people are going to uh, dislike that idea. Everyone wants to understand what's going on more clearly. Um, but that gives you a license then to do a bunch of quote-unquote manual therapy techniques, um, all just for the purposes of symptom modification. And I find going through that process and ex talking with a person, having a dialogue. Okay, well, when we stretch the skin a little bit on your shoulder, um, it doesn't hurt as much and you can go further into abduction than you could before. What do you think that points to? Do you still think that there's some problem in your shoulder joint? that's stopping you from being able to move? Uh, often, maybe not, right? Um, and so, once you've gone through your techniques, each time kind of reflecting, you do your test-retest, which maybe is a different topic because I, I don't think that's hugely meaningful in a lot of respects either, but it, you use the manual therapy and the testing to show the person that you're listening to what they're saying, you're carefully examining the problem area and you're building up a shared understanding of what seems to make them feel better and what doesn't. Um, and from there, I think you're really well armed to talk about what you think is actually going to help them with this problem. Um, spoilers, it's probably an active approach, right? But I, I feel like in the cases where you show that you've been very thorough uh, hearing their story, examining what their limitations are when they're in motion and when they're not in motion, um, you can have a respectful, honest dialogue with a person that allows you to directly talk about the, the, the need or lack thereof for manual therapy in a way that maybe would have been harder if you didn't do it at all. So, for example, quickly, because I know I've been talking for quite a while, but it, it really helps to do some very light manual therapy and note that they feel better afterwards, but directly speak then to the transients of that effect and go, well, it's interesting that we can affect how your shoulder feels without actually doing much around the muscles or the joints at all. And before you thought that there was some sort of, we'll say a joint issue or whatever, do you still think that that's the case? A lot of the time when you have these, this kind of transient pain that is there one moment and then we do something very minor in the scheme of things and then it's changed or it's gone, often this responds really well to an active approach because I'm very confident there isn't anything sinister going on here. And we could certainly spend a lot of time repeating what I've just done with your shoulder, but I'm sure you can appreciate, I'm just gonna have to do this constantly. If, if you wanna be feeling good and you can't have me just attached to your shoulder as you go about your day, are you interested in us talking about these, these active approaches, which will, will be just as effective, but you don't need me. Um, and I think at that point you've built enough trust and they think you know what you're talking about that, um, that it, you can successfully move in that direction. And then you don't need the manual therapy for the pain management at all. Um, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, it touched on some important topics. Um, and I can see the, the, a few rebuttals, if I may. Absolutely. So, so rebuttal one, what if they are going into the consultation with a pain reduction goal, purely, mm. and they just want to feel good. And the clinician also just wants to provide that feeling good and, um, and providing that service. What would you say in, that, in, that, in the context of pain management? Yeah. 
Sure. So I would say that's a, a really valid thing for you to want. Um, and then I would want to talk with them for a while about why that is such a, a high priority for them. Because it seems self-evident, but some people aren't that bothered by their pain and some people really are. And often when you're really bothered by your pain, it's getting in the way of things that are more important to you. Um, and I want to understand that. And I'll explain to them that me understanding that is ultimately going to be really helpful because then we can give find ways of getting them back to what they're doing, um, even if it's exactly what they've come in asking for. That we want to find the most effective way of you not being bothered by this anymore. And that could be that the pain goes away or it could be something else. Um, we just need to come up with a shared understanding and then we'll move forward. Um, and on that subject, we can absolutely just do a, a session focused on manual therapy. But if a person is that, if this is such a high priority for them, they're probably also going to be amenable to us doing a bit of experimentation to find the manual therapy approach that is going to be the most effective for them, which, which is the way that I would, I would coach it. Right? So I'd say we, you, you've had experience, for example, with like firm massage in the past, and you know that works for you, but you still have this problem. Um, we'll just for the moment assume that this has been going on for a little while. Is it okay if we do some experimentation to find if there's any aspect of what's going on here that maybe you weren't aware of earlier or previous therapists weren't? We may find an avenue that leads to better results for you. Is it okay if we do that? And I'll always ask, ask permission because really it's their right. Um, there are worse things than seeing somebody for, in my case, seeing a massage therapist because you've got a sore back and just getting a massage and then feeling a bit better. Personally, that's not ideal for me as a therapist, but there are worse things and it's their right to choose that. Um, but I've, I would say that my own experience is that people are very amenable to at least a little bit of exploration and experimentation. And in the back of my mind, I always want to be going, what's a useful thing that I can investigate that may slightly change their mind about what's going on with their body? Um, and so even if the session pans out very similar to what they came in asking for, and I don't think that's ideal, if at the very least they realize that, oh, I don't need somebody to really dig in there for my back to feel better, they could also do something very gentle. Hmm, what does that tell me about what's going on? Um, encouraging questions like that. As, as like the minimum bar, I want to at least do that. Um, does that answer your question or did I just go off topic? Yeah, that was great. And um, so you're talking about perhaps a minimal effective dose for the intervention as opposed to something that requires the skillful application or specific treatment from the therapist. So mm. if we were to look at the extremes, the surgery, like the most invasive options would be the, the last options. And closer to the, the ones that you want to kind of start with would be the lighter touch less pressure or as minimal like one simple movement one simple exercise one simple one simple maneuver that is so perhaps innocuous so simple and easy to do that maybe they can do themselves totally. and, and you found some success with that yeah yeah um i like to be serious but light-hearted in my consults and that i one of the reasons I like that is because you have an opportunity to find ways of modifying symptoms that are so laughable that you can have a laugh about it and that laugh can be quite instructive. 
So I, I, I remember a client who had, had quite limiting shoulder pain, which is probably why I jumped to shoulder before, because I often think about this guy. Um, he had pretty narrow ideas about what he needed for relief. Um, and, but he did acquiesce to a little bit of experimentation and we quickly found that we could shift, we could stretch the skin around his shoulder in a certain way that returned full range of motion. And then we just had a good old laugh about how silly it was that he'd been, he was in reality quite limited. He had very little range of motion normally, but he could see how ludicrous it was that a, a very, very mild change that he could do himself could give him such relief. Um, and I think moving in that direction, trying to find the smallest thing that you can do is just a, a healthy way of providing care that also undermines ideas, unhelpful ideas that this problem is really deep. This problem is really serious. This is an entrenched problem. It's a, a really tight knot or some something that, that Toby has to gouge out with his elbows. Um, deconstructing those in a, a humorous way really opens the doors for discussions about the, as I said before, the, the, the transient aspects of manual therapy for pain relief. Um, and it, it's just a segue into going, well, if, if you can show shoulder feels better from doing something silly like this, you understand that this is kind of a problem with how your shoulder feels, less a problem with how your shoulder is structurally. Um, and that's a very helpful conversation to have. And this person in particular is one of my favorite category of clients because we, we did two sessions like this and afterwards he was kind of reflecting aloud about how in the session it feels a lot better to do that and then it feels better afterwards but then before long his shoulder goes back to normal, which is perfect. I want people saying that. Yeah, it does go back to normal because we're just changing how it feels. What do you think about what we've discussed before about ways that we can change that in a more long-term sense. And also, how do you feel about the fact that it hurts now that you know that it's just a feeling and it's not broken? Are you less fussed about therapy to begin with now that you've kind of figured that out? And the answer to, to that was to yes. And I think that's really good for self-efficacy. Yeah. Awesome. And the, the manner in which you did that was you provided the experience first, the perhaps a subtle change and then you ask them to reflect on that rather than spurting out an answer, your own biased narrative as to why you did what you did. Yeah. You, you initially found out what they thought of it, what their meaning of it was, how they reconciled it. So, and on that note, how do you, do, do you use that with your education and how else do you, do you find is effective with, with providing that information, the education to, to clients? Totally. Um, I, for me, I think the key is something that I alluded to earlier, and that is that as much as possible, I, I try to have these experiences occur, um, slightly removed from the context of a therapy being delivered. So I said before that I think it should, it has a better home, manual therapy specifically, in prior to treatment, the, the assessment phase, right? Um, this, what I call in consults, just the experimentation. I think it's very useful to not couch what you're doing in terms of something that is directly intended to improve their pain. Uh, you couch it in terms of 
something that may change how they feel. It may affect their pain. It may just change their sensation in a different way. It may, ch may change the way they move. But what it is is an experiment where both myself, but especially the person, is learning a little bit more about what's going on with whatever this issue is. Um, and I try and leave the expectations really broad. And I think that lets you have these learning moments where I didn't have to ever give some give that guy the, the pain chat um, where I, I told him about the, the, the complexity and the malleability of pain. We didn't have to talk about his overflowing cup, even though I think that's a really good metaphor. Um, we didn't really have to approach any of that because he could just see in the moment during what he thought was just a very thorough assessment, he could see weird things that already were making him wonder about what was going on, which led him to ask me questions that were in line with the stuff that I wanted to talk about to begin with. The, the complexity of pain, the difference between how something feels versus what's actually going on in the tissues, um, and the, the many ways that the experience of pain can be affected um, outside of manual therapy. So, to answer your question, creating, trying to create a kind of learning environment where they, the manual therapy is teaching them about the, the malleability of pain, detaching the ideas of it hurts and something's wrong with me, getting them to realize that pain in itself can, can be the problem and it, it doesn't necessarily speak to anything more sinister than just it hurts. Um, yeah, creating an environment where that learning can take place is very important. I think it's really hard if you're doing that in the context of I'm doing this because it will make you feel better. Um, within that bundled in is this implication that you know what is fundamentally driving this person's pain. And you're, you've chosen this because it's going to address the thing that is driving their pain or a primary driver of it at least. Um, and that's already putting the tissue-based approach on this kind of pedestal that it can be helpful, but it's also really hard to then backpedal and go, oh, but it might not. Actually, it, actually pain is complicated and oh, we're just calming it down, mm. but I did specifically choose this, etc. cetera. It, it all becomes very messy. Um, and it's not messy if the person doesn't even think you're doing it to, because you're confident they'll feel better. If you just say, I don't even know, let's see, and we're just doing it to learn, I think it, it all goes a lot more smoothly. So framing it as an experiment, as an assessment, yeah. testing a few things out as opposed to I know exactly what it is that is driving your pain. And we could see perhaps parallels with, with exercise if we were to choose a very specific, say targeted exercise to a specific muscle, and we use that initially based on our, our own biases and our own assessment, and that's the that leads to the symptom reduction. Could that also be framed as perhaps a more invasive treatment or invasive option where we are making it perhaps more complicated than it needs to be? Could could general movement and exercise or some um, a, a, a simpler form of movement that doesn't require our specific expertise be just as helpful? for the purposes of symptom modification? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, because implicit with all of these, like the, the hidden stinger is that they can get the wrong idea and think, oh, this person is really good at 
understanding my body, this complex machine, they can find the right way of moving or the right way of stretching out this tissue, the right thing to press to make me feel better. And so symptom modification, either with manual therapy or in terms of movement, um, can definitely fall into that pit hole. Pit, pit, yeah, that pothole, there we go. And yeah, so maybe finding something more general in which if the same lesson can be extracted, I can definitely see the, the value there. Um, personally, I, I think that the, the, the combination of, of all of this stuff is, is very helpful in, a, in the learning context. So when it comes to the manual therapy side, what I try and do is find the, what I can do that will change their symptoms. And I try and very aggressively reflect on what that means and what it doesn't mean. And I try to let them come to those conclusions themselves without just telling them. But I will also be quite, um, I'll be pretty careful to also do something general with them. Um, so once we've gone through our, our thorough assessment and we know that we can modify their symptoms in a certain way, I'll spend time doing that. But I'll also spend time just generally, like if they have a sore back, I'll just give them a general back massage and I'll say that's what I'm doing. I'll say, now I'm very intentionally not deeply working on these target areas. I'm not going for anything. We just want your back to feel nice and I want you to, we'll see what, what happens with that, with that as well. And we may find that also affects how your back feels. And then if that's the case, we can reflect on that as well. Um, which I think has parallels with what you're talking about. There is certainly usefulness in being so obvious in, in the case of an active symptom modification approach that we're not even trying to find a special way of you doing that squat. <laughs> Just do some squats. How does it feel now? It feels better. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. So we can have a bit more of a, a funnel, a filter of the, the simplest thing that we can do and the least complex towards more of the more complex ones, mm. depending on that person's expectations, prior experiences, both negative and positive, then their own personal goals of what they want to get out of the session. Yeah. And I really like the way that you ask for permission each time you're going through these stages. Yeah. That's actually something that um, I got from Walt Fritz, who's a manual therapist uh, from the States, and he is really big on asking permission and being respectful and having an, a, an actual real dialogue with the person in front of you, a, a proper collaboration. And I, yeah, I agree with him. I think it, it really is essential, um, especially if you're trying to get a message across. If you don't even have permission to be having the discussion to begin with, it's very hard. And in, in terms of, so by the way, for the audience listening, we've got uh, a podcast with Walt Fritz, if you're interested, where we dive into this topic. And, um, and yeah, highly would recommend that course for manual therapists if they're looking to upskill in the, in the therapeutic relationship involved in, in manual therapy. Yep, do Walt's course. There you go. Uh, and in, in terms of uh, another big topic for you, Toby, is self-efficacy. So there's the idea that we, we should be fostering self-efficacy if we were to look at the, how, we, how little we can actually do for pain, at least long-term. If we want to foster independence and strategies for people to manage their symptoms themselves long-term, mm -hmm. how can we frame manual therapy to 
to maintain someone's sense that they can control their symptoms or they have a sense of control over their symptoms themselves. So it's, it, mm. And I can see parallels with, with exercise if we were, like you said, very specific with our prescription because we know everything and we, we are the authority figure. We could also rob people away from self-efficacy with exercise if we overcue the shit out of a squat, for instance. Yeah. So with, in, the, in the context of as a massage therapist or a manual therapist, keeping self-efficacy in mind, what would be your approach? Yep. So first thing is that one of the benefits of trying to do lighter work is that lighter work is a lot easier for the person to do themselves. So if they're really um, holding tightly to their, the need for symptomatic relief, it's pretty easy to give somebody a sheet, say, of Dyson, which um, Diane Jacobs works with quite a lot. It's just this super grippy kind of plasticky material. Um, lets you easily do stuff like stretch, stretch your own skin and that kind of thing. Um, it's nothing special. Um, but step one, of course, is just giving them ways that they can do it themselves. But I think it's important if you want to foster actual self-efficacy to for them to be very clear that they're just changing how it feels. They're not changing anything else, um, which is why I think the lighter stuff has a bit of an advantage over something like gi giving them a like a trigger ball or a foam roller and just saying, well, when it's sore, just really work through it find the sore spots, sit into it, and so on. Um, that, that can certainly work, but uh, I think there's a purity in giving somebody something that is kind of laughable in, in how innocuous it is, right? And that can teach them a good lesson. But deeper um, to, to the idea of, like it, it, your question speaks to the question of whether manual therapy can ever truly promote self-efficacy as an activity itself. Because um, what I, homework is nothing is not a, a unique thing to manual therapy, right? Um, and I'm open to the idea that it that it doesn't. Um, I think that the therapeutic exchange absolutely can foster self-efficacy, and you can really maybe do a lot of damage. Not to be too um, pessimistic about it, but you can give people some pretty difficult notions. Um, or you can really help somebody along. And, and that is something that is not really unique to manual therapy or exercise. That's just about communication. Um, and so when you pull that away and you, you ask yourself the question, how can I promote this person's self-efficacy specifically through massage or manual therapy in a way that, I, that you couldn't necessarily do with a different method, like with exercise, it's a, a pretty difficult question to answer, right? Um, I do think that in terms of having a... If somebody's self-efficacy is perhaps impaired by beliefs that they have about what's going on, actually engaging with those beliefs in a direct way, I do believe can involve putting your hands on them, but I don't think it always has to. I think it should really be something that um, you use when if and when it is appropriate, I don't think it should be a mainstay. I definitely don't think it is inherently good for anybody's self-efficacy to have you put your hands on them for the purposes of pain relief. Um, one caveat though is that when we talk about manual therapy, we're, we're talking about the, the sort of intervention that you would 
get from a physiotherapist or a massage therapist when the focus is very pain-centric. Um, but it can perhaps be a mistake to only think about self-efficacy in the context of pain relief. Um, and this gets into kind of tricky ground, but is, and this is a rhetorical question, but I was, I find myself wondering at times, um, is something like a hug from a loved one, does that inherently build self-efficacy? Probably not. Um, but to be glib about it, it is very nice. Um, and I don't think that is a high enough bar for us to, <laughs> that, that bar is way too low. For, for a healthcare intervention for you to say, well, well it's nice, so we should do it. That's, um, that's not the way we, we should be approaching things. But one thing that is often, I think, uh, easy to forget is that there is a subset of the population who come to a consult in significant amounts of distress. And sometimes that level of distress is at least an acute impairment on their ability to function. Um, and the, the comfort that can come from somebody who, perhaps for cultural reasons, say, has this a, an expectation and a perceived need for somebody else to put their hands on them and to provide comfort, I think providing that can be hugely meaningful, um, just in the same way that a hug from a loved one is hugely meaningful and can really change your day and it can really change your ability to grapple with some very difficult life problems that you might be having, um, even though well, they, they didn't provide something that you could really talk about in therapeutic terms. Um, and that's where I think self-efficacy, the, the talk about whether something supports self-efficacy gets blurry at the edges, right? Because you can't just say, this is a comforting uh, intervention. People generally like it. They like it when they've got a sore calf and you put your hands on it for a while. And that's enough the fact that they like it will be good for their self-efficacy. That's, I don't think you can make that argument. But I think there are cases where you're dealing with distress, you're dealing with very worrying beliefs, you're dealing with um, sometimes somebody who just needs comforting. And there can be times when comfort provided in that manner, I would say, is going to be, is going to help them pursue their, val their values, do the things that they actually care about, re-engage in a way that's meaningful. But is manual therapy inherently good for self-efficacy? No. Um, but not much is. Mm. It, Does that make you, sense? Could you expand on that last point that the not much is? Yeah, not much is by itself. Right, so, so it depends exercise, on the context. Yeah, and... absolutely. So, of course, I would say something like exercise is inherently more likely to, to be good for somebody's self-efficacy because you've got this broad spectrum positive effect. It's, it's, it's going to help out a lot of aspects of their life um, directly and indirectly. They're going to be able to physically engage with things that they care about, so on and so forth. I don't really need to talk about why exercise is generally good for self-efficacy. So it's better set up for it. But just being active uh, by itself really misses out on all of the, the context, the communication, the beliefs underlying that activity that drive self-efficacy. And when we're talking about a therapeutic encounter, exercise can be used for, for good or ill, I suppose. Um, and so in, in that respect, that, that's why I say that mm -hmm. nothing is inherently good for self-efficacy. Yeah. And 
exercise can induce dependency as much as a, a passive therapy can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and then you get into the, the, the layer of discussion where you go, well, what, what's a better or worse kind of dependence? Um, I do think exercise wins out on that one, right? Um, but it, it does get messy. So when it comes to massage, for example, which maybe it helps, I think, to uh, differentiate that a little bit from manual therapy, um, specifically for the reason that um, if you read, Christopher Moyer wrote a pretty interesting paper quite a number of years ago now um, titled Affective Massage Therapy. And he was just reflecting on the, the interesting trend in massage therapy research that points to pretty sizable Im impacts on state and trait anxiety, right? And depression. Uh, and his paper was just calling for more research in that area and talking about how it, it would be very useful for us to have a dialogue about the fact that we know that massage feels good and it changes the way that you feel emotionally. Um, and it may be more helpful for us to be talking about ma massage therapy in terms of how it makes you feel versus how it makes how it modifies a pain experience because we know that it's really not that special in that respect um, and perhaps we're just barking up the wrong tree focusing on that um, I bring that up because there is you could make the argument that if you are trying to improve somebody's self-efficacy um, and they're suffering from anxiety or depression well maybe we leave aside the reality of the situation, because honestly, I don't know for for sure whether massage is good, um, is worth it for somebody with anxiety or depression. But you, I think it's worth starting to think about um, whether it's enough just to change somebody's mood, right? Is that enough to affect their self-efficacy? Which is why I brought up a hug, right? Um, for our purposes, I think often this conversation is a little bit narrower than mood. We want concrete clinical outcomes. Um, But yeah, that's that's why I'm, it, it sounds like I am. I'm very on the fence mm, when it mm. comes to self-efficacy because I think it's easy to it's self-evident that it, it's easy to foster dependence. But I, I think there's probably a certain time and place where it ultimately it it's, it helps the person pursue their values. Mm, mm. And perhaps reiterating the the benefits of of manual therapy as therapeutic touch in a calm, safe context in a setting where people can express themselves and feel better emotionally and have a better mood following the intervention as opposed to feeling better in regards to pain. Yes. So rather than a pain-focused manual therapy intervention, we can look at an overall affective exactly. focus. Yeah, you said a lot better than I did. Um, <laughs> but yeah, stole your words, that's... man. But that's it. Um, and that's why I'm pretty comfortable and confident talking about how I'm happy to be persuaded that manual therapy is not useful in a pain management context. Um, I don't, I think in most cases you're not missing out on a whole lot, but I, I don't think that necessarily means that it's not useful in a general therapeutic context. Mm. Um, outside of pain management specifically. Yeah, makes sense. And even if we can draw parallels with active approaches, we can look at having person-centered goals as opposed to just purely a pain reduction goal. So rather than 
having an intervention to target pain reduction, whether that be manual therapy or exercise, we can look at how can we increase this person's self-efficacy or self-management or quality of life, function, all the things that we can actually have proper outcomes over, especially when it comes to persisting pain. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's a really, that's a, a tight parallel mm. you draw for sure. And with, in terms of back in, uh, in the clinical practice uh, viewpoint where you would come across, as a, as a massage therapist, you'd come across some really funky beliefs, I yeah. imagine. So what are some examples and how would you approach their, and how would you assess their readiness for change? Yeah. So, you know, it's the whole spectrum, really funky beliefs. Um, a lot of people think that they've got really bad posture and that's a primary driver for their symptoms. Um, a lot of people have ideas, pre-existing ideas about fundamental muscular weaknesses or tightness or any, some sort of imbalance that, that is a primary driver that comes up a lot. Um, and the other one I suppose is just that sadly, commonly, at least people who book in for a massage, perhaps it's kind of self-selecting in this respect. A lot of them are fairly ignorant to the, the range of treatment strategies that are actually available to them. Um, especially from an Australian perspective where our healthcare system, our Medicare system is actually quite well set up, I would argue, for um, allowing access to evidence-based strategies for pain management. A lot of people are quite ignorant to that as well, um, which I think is worth mentioning. Yeah, so, and the way that I try and address that, was, that was your second question, right? The, the beliefs, yeah. Of how do I address those? Yeah, so um, I, in the beginning, I did a lot of explain pain talking, um, and I still want people to come away having learnt those kinds of lessons, but I, I try and steer away from it now un, until it's backed up by an experience they've had in the moment um, that clashes with some idea that they've had previously. Um, and we kind of talked about that before, so I'll gloss over that now. Um, another thing that I try and talk quite frankly with them about is just how they've come to my office to begin with. Um, People usually have a bit of a story about why they've come to see a massage therapist. For a lot of people, it's kind of a last ditch attempt, or they've got an idea that they got from somebody else about how massage is really good for back pain or what have you. And having a good conversation about, about what brought them there and what those, what their ideas are about good care and what's going on with them and why massage is, they've already decided it's probably a good fit for them or at least worth a try. Um, that's a really good way of getting them comfortable talking about the beliefs that then I, I want to start challenging. But I, I try to be very respectful and purely interested in their perspective um, until we start playing around with those ideas in the session. And in what we were talking about before, in a, in a context where we're both just trying to understand more about what's going on. Um, and I, I do try and if for the most part, I try and use that as a bridge to, if they have this the very common idea, for example, that physiotherapy is probably not for them because they've tried exercise therapy once in the past and they just got some TheraBand exercises and it just didn't really work for them. Um, exploring what exercise is um, in a, a 
a context very separate from exercise. So for myself as a person who can't prescribe it, um, sometimes that has its advantages as well uh, in terms of letting people speak their mind very confidently. I feel like they've said, uh, many clients say things to a massage therapist they wouldn't say to a physiotherapist or an EP. And as massage therapists, we should see that as a really great opportunity to establish the rapport needed to change their mind. That's, that's really awesome. And, and one of the parallels that I've been hearing from this talk is you always ask deeper questions. You don't just, just take what the person says and apply something to, to that. So rather mm. than someone wanting and asking for a therapy, you'd ask what's their experience with that? What drives you to seek that therapy? Why do they think now? Why not before? Like what's changed to, to ask for this, this therapy? And I think it's common for, for people to go about their, their routine and not ask these questions, not ask these deeper, meaningful questions, not find out what that person values and what has driven them to seek physio, to seek EP, to seek massage. Absolutely. And I think validating their choices up until that point and their experience in the moment is really powerful. Mm. Yeah. Awesome, man. I think... We've covered a lot of topics and I'm hoping that there will be some questions as well so we can get you back on board this podcast. Um, so Toby, as I mentioned, is stays under the radar, but he I'll, I'll get him out of, of his, <laughs> his hiding spots. I and don't like social media. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll tag and, and encourage questions because I know that there will be a lot of questions as to how... Uh, how a massage therapist encourages exercise and perhaps drives people away from massage in a way, in a oh, tongue-in-cheek kind of way. Yeah, yeah. That's my ultimate goal in the, for an initial consultation is to convince them that they probably don't need massage. Um, there are caveats though. Um, apologies if anything I've said was too general or non-specific. Please do ask for clarification. I'll do my best to be would, clear. Would there be a, a caveat in mind that you have? Yeah, so there are there are plenty of times when massage is a great and meaningful thing for a person. So it's not actually true that for all clients that I see, I want to not ever see them again. There, there are actually times where the massage is, is a good thing, right? Um, but as I said before, often I really don't think that's that should be our, the first thing we reach for in a pain management sense. Mm. And often it's just helpful for it to not play a large part. Mm. Um, or if it is playing a part, it's clearly there for a different reason. So mm. for example, for improving affect, mm. right? Um, so with those disclaimers aside, if somebody sees comes to me with a pain problem, um, I'm from the beginning of the consult thinking about what's led them to see me, how I can better understand where they're coming from, let them know that I care about and understand them and then have a good conversation about what their better options are within our healthcare system. And there are many of them. Amazing. Amazing. So some valuable takeaways for the audience and until next time, Mr. Toby Coy, it's been a pleasure. Daniel, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you.